morning, everybody. So here we are again, uh, looking at the chapter five, Guarding Alertness, and we are steadily making our way through it. Yeah, we completed the section last week that was uh, about the body and asking us to look at how we relate to our body. And if we uh, pamper it, see it as the source of happiness, see it as this precious treasured thing that we want to, to always look well, or if we, you know, and we have some of that, because we've been grew up in society and that's what we were taught. But then how to learn to see the body differently as Shantideva uh, um, suggests as a boat. It's a vehicle to get us from the shore of samsara to the shore of nirvana. Okay. And so you keep your boat well maintained. Okay. But you don't have to decorate it, and you don't have to fuss over it, and you don't have to, uh, you know, pamper it, and so on. Okay, so it's uh, it takes a while, and it, it's a thing of constant, you know, practice to really try and develop a healthy relationship with our body. Yeah, many of us are quite judgmental about different aspects of our body. Yeah, so the body isn't judgmental of itself. It's in, you know, it's just material vegetable goo. But the mind looks at the body and says, you know, oh, I wish my body looked like this. I wish like it, it felt like that. I wish this. I wish that. And, uh, you know, oh, my body looks like this, therefore people think about me like this, my body looks like that, therefore people think about me this way, and uh, get all tangled up in, you know, something that is vegetable goo. You know, for so for worldly people in society, yes, that's exactly how society does. And the economy thrives before it because of it. I mean, what are most of the things that, that are in stores and businesses? How to make your body look good, how to make it comfortable, how to give it pleasure. You know, it's our whole economy functions on that. And that's not just even the part of the body of how to keep it alive by, you know, because it needs food and it needs water and it needs things to keep alive. Not even counting that, but how to make it, you know, bigger and better and more whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah. And how that just occupies our time. And like I said, how we judge ourselves based on the body. And we develop an identity based on the body. And then we feel bad because we aren't like somebody else who's better than us. You know, they're taller than we are. They have blonde hair and blue eyes and we don't. And, you know, they have this color skin and I don't. And, uh, you know, 
kind of, and they're at the proper weight, and I'm not, and, you know, they can walk without a limp, and I walk with a limp, and on and on and on. Oh, my goodness, you know, we put so much energy into judging and hating ourselves for, you know, what is just a, a vehicle. Yeah, from a Buddhist, you know, from a worldly viewpoint, oh yes, all of that pertains. But we're not, we're trying not to be worldly people. Yeah, we're trying to be Dharma practitioners. So we have to train our mind to see that none of that is really important. We've had many, many bodies. Since beginningless time, we've had bodies. Yeah. Some of them have just been over the moon, attractive and healthy, and they still died. And some of them have been ugly and with lots of problems, and they also died. And whatever identities we created about our bodies in all those different lives, do you remember any of them? Do you remember any of your bodies? Is it important to you now in this lifetime whether you were attractive or not in a previous lifetime? I hope you're not dwelling on that. <laughs> so, you know, if you think about your future lifetimes, are you going to be remembering this body and saying, oh, I wish I looked like this, I wish I did that? You know, I wish I were Simone Biles. You know, I wish I were, uh, uh, no, uh, Simone Biles. You don't know who Simone Biles is. A gymnast who does incredible, amazing things. Or I wish I were LeBron James. Yeah, I don't know who he is, but you know, people talk about him. Basketball? Okay. Or I wish I were, who's she? Tana Naomi Osaki. Or, you know, I wish I was Marilyn Monroe. But do you really want to be Marilyn Monroe? My goodness, what a suffering life she had. You know, so you don't want to be thinking in a future life about this body, because you won't even remember it. So let's keep it healthy. Let's help it to work properly. Take your vitamins, eat your prunes, or don't eat your prunes, depending, you know. Take medicine when you need it. Uh, get enough sleep, but not too much sleep. They're finding out that people who sleep too much, also it's not good for you. So you got to get exactly the right amount, which, of course, is different for each person and different in each uh, year and different in each season. But, you know, you just get it approximately. That should be good enough. And, you know, make sure your, your body is healthy and clean, please, uh, so that you can practice the Dharma. And otherwise, don't worry about it. Yeah. We have too many more important things to direct our men mental energy towards. Yeah. Yeah.
Do you remember how much time you spent on your body in the past? Oh. Huh? And money. Yeah. Yeah. So, let's have a healthy relationship with our body. Okay. So, we will start with the prayers, the recitations, as we usually do. So, uh, I'll talk some more about the body, and then we'll, afterwards, and we'll go into the, uh, you know, the next section after that. Okay, so do the, the visualization. Okay, the Buddha, surrounded by all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And their bodies are just manifestations of their inner qualities. I don't think Yamantaka worries about, you know, his bulging belly. He has a big bulge. I don't think he worries about that, you know. And I don't think Tara worries about her figure. Because their minds are directed towards something much more important. And remember that you're surrounded by all the sentient beings in human form. So all the bugs, we have lots of bugs here. Let's generate our motivation. One way to generate bodhicitta is to start off thinking about the qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And especially creating a feeling of closeness with the Buddha as the teacher of the Dharma, which is his mind stream and the realizations and cessations of it on it and the kindness of the sangha who support us in our practice so when we really think of the qualities of the three jewels and turn to them for spiritual guidance we feel protected. We feel cared for. And we feel that we have a direction in life and others who have followed that path who will guide us on it. So take a moment and generate that feeling of closeness with the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha.
And then think of how important the bodhicitta was to the accomplishments of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. What a key part of their path and of their present state bodhicitta is. Especially that the whole reason that all the Buddhas became Buddhas was in in order to benefit sentient beings. And isn't that a completely glorious mental state that we would like to have? One where every time, every living being we saw, there was a feeling of closeness, of care, compassion, and a wish to benefit. so because we admire the Buddhas, we admire the bodhicitta, we aspire to generate it. And so we do, we enact that aspiration right now as our reason for listening to the teachings. You can also think that way about the author of whatever text you are studying. Yeah. And uh, especially this one with the Shantideva, if you think, I mean, you really get a sense of his personality through reading this text. It's because it's not a, a dry text, there's plenty of oomph and personal sharing and everything in it. And so you think, wow, you know, I'd like to be like Shantideva, to be able to be that, for me, you know, that honest with myself and really work hard and no self-criticism, no blame. Yeah? And, uh, yeah, and so then you think, well, how did he do that? It's through the bodhicitta. Yeah. And then, when you think about a little bit about his life and what other people taught, uh, thought about him and how he didn't care beans about that, <laughs> 
then that gives us some courage to not care so much about what other people think about us either. Yeah. Because what people think about us isn't half as bad as what they thought about him. (laughs) Because he was in the monastery, and he was known as, you know, the monk who did three things. Eat, drink, and go to the toilet. And that's how the other monks looked at him. Like, what a flake. (laughs) You know, he's not worth anything in this monastery. And he didn't care. He just went on with his practice. And then later they figured out who he was. Okay, so some more comments uh, about the body. So here are some practices that are helpful to do to uh, lessen attachment to the body. So the first one is the inner mandala offering. So we often recite that. I've gone through the visualization. Some of you have heard it before. Some of you haven't. Whether you do that visualization or not, I have no idea. But I know that when I do it, it really helps me. Okay? So the visualization for the inner mandala, because inner here, inner means what is attached, what is part of the person. Okay? The external mandala is Mount Meru and all those kinds of things. The inner mandala is you know, your body, basically. So uh, your trunk and your stomach become Mount Meru, huge stomach. (laughs) Yeah. The four continents are your two hands and your two feet. So you imagine your body kind of going out and transforming into what the external world looks like, okay? The the eight subcontinents are, you know, your upper and lower arm, your knee, and your calf. Calves, so that makes eight. The circles of, uh, seven circles of mountains, you know, between the continents and subcontinents and Mount Meru in the middle, those are your intestines, Yeah. So you take all this stuff out of your body and put it there. The 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 uh, water between these rings of mountains is your blood. Yeah. At the top of uh, Mount Meru, you have uh, the sun and the moon. So that's your two eyes, and the victory banner and the uh, umbrella which are your two ears, and then all your internal organs become your spleen, your, yeah, that's good. It's good to go, your spleen, your kidneys, your stomach, your pancreas, yeah, 
your tongue, your esophagus, your lungs, all of that becomes offerings filling all of space, beautiful offerings. So you've completely dismembered your body mentally and transformed it into this ideal vision of the universe. Okay? And so, and then you offer that to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So then, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. First of all, it isn't this ordinary body anymore. It's this beautiful layout of the universe. And second of all, you've offered it to the Buddha, so it's not yours. So you don't need to fuss so much about it. Yeah. So if there's a particular part of your body that you're very attached to, if you're attached to your hair, then it can become beautiful, you know, clouds of offerings. And if if you worry about your, you have stomach problems or kidney problems, you know, again, they become beautiful things. Uh, when when you're ready, you know, when you're approaching the time when you need a um, colonoscopy, that becomes, your, you know, the rings of, of mountains around Mount Meru. Okay, when your feet hurt, they become, you know, they're already transformed into the the uh, continents. Okay, and so you've offered all that to the Buddha, so it doesn't belong to you anymore. And when you offered it to the Buddha, you said, you know, by offering it to the Buddha, may the Buddha use it to benefit sentient beings. So you're really dedicating your life and your body to be used for the benefit of, of sentient beings. Yeah, And that helps so much to, you know, you've given it away. It's not yours. You don't need to be attached to it. Yeah. So that that's one practice is very helpful for cutting attachment to the body. The other practice is for people who have the Vajrayogini initiation. Um, and in that sadhana, there's a practice called the Kusali offering. And in it, uh, this is only done by the people who have that empowerment. Okay, You imagine uh, cutting your skull off, you know, like, like they do when they do... Um, by not biopsies, autopsy, yeah, and then you imagine the whole rest of your body being chopped up and put in the skull cup, and then you look at it, you make it boil, yeah, everything melts, it gets blessed with omahong and different things in the visualization, and then you offer that to your spiritual teacher who experiences bliss and emptiness, to the lineage lamas, who experience bliss and emptiness. Because when you boil it, it's turned into blissful wisdom nectar. Yeah, you offer it to all the Buddhas and bodhisattvas, to all the Dharma protectors. Yeah, they all experience bliss and emptiness. Then you offer it to all the sentient beings. And you imagine that their minds are purified and their minds become 
peaceful and tranquil and harmonious and receptive to the Dharma. And it's so nice, you know, it's like now I'm using my body for something useful and it's having this really good effect on all the sentient beings. And then you also think of anybody that you've had uncomfortable relationships with, you know, that you need to forgive or apologize people you may have harmed or whatever. And you imagine offering this blissful wisdom nectar to them, and it completely purifies any tension in the relationship. It's quite beautiful because, you know, your whole body has been transformed into this blissful wisdom nectar. It doesn't even look like your body. Yeah, and then you offer it to the holy beings, to the sentient beings, and imagine their response to receiving that. Yeah, and so again, it's it's this thing of giving up your body, you know, here in your imagination. But wow, wouldn't it be nice if you could give up your body and uh, offer it to all the people who are depressed, and it cures their depression, and to offer all the people in war war torn countries who are fearful, and it it you know eliminates their fear. Yeah. So it, it's quite beautiful to to imagine like that. Okay, so these kind of practices that, uh, you know, the Buddha had taught many things like this. And Shantideva, just in the last section, went through a whole way of how we should think. Yeah, which if we follow that, it really helps us to release the, the clinging and the worry and the fear and the anxiety about our body. Yeah, it's quite interesting to look at how much anxiety we have about our body, yeah, and how much concern and worry and this and that and the other thing. And then to do a practice, and your body's been transformed to something else. You give it to sentient beings. They enjoy it. You give them the whole world and everything beautiful. They enjoy that. The Buddhists enjoy it. It really changes the way you think. So try to remember, even if you're not reciting the inner offering verse, which does come in many of the practices we do, even you're just doing the, you know, this ground anointed version, you can still think of your body, uh, you know, being transformed into the universe and offering it like that. Okay. So now Shantideva moves into uh, a new section, kind of giving us instructions. This is very practical instructions about how to act. Okay? So you remember I I said it's a whole social, becoming a Buddhist and especially becoming a, a monastic is a whole socialization process. So here's, you know, Shantideva kind of encouraging us to uh, join the families of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and this is how they practice, and this is how they try and act. So he tells us, and then we do our best. We're like little kids, but little kids try. Yeah. So verse 71, 
Now while there is freedom to act, I should always present a smiling face and cease to frown and look angry. I should be a friend and counsel of the world. Okay, so now when we have a precious human life, yeah, present a smiling face. Does that mean that you feel crummy and you go like this? No. It means you feel crummy, you realize, oh, this is a crummy feeling, it's impermanent. It arises due to causes, it ceases when those causes cease. It's not who I am. So I feel crummy, I can still smile. There's all these sentient beings around who are my friends, who have been kind to me. I smile at them. I smile because I also know my crummy feeling is going to go away. And I think, I've heard that they've done some research, and if you practice smiling, it actually changes how you feel, that something happens with using these muscles. Yeah. But you can, you can just tell by your own experience. When, when you make your, you know, when you smile, you feel good. Yeah. So it's not just you feel good and that makes you smile. But when you smile, it helps you to feel good. Okay. Then sometimes we feel crummy. And it's like, and then you go. Now, you make that face right now. Some of you already have it. But <laughs> those of you who don't, you know, go. Yeah. How does that make you feel? I mean, it affects your mood, doesn't it? When you just the f- making a face like that, then smile. You feel better. Uh, it's quite interesting. So, and especially if we think how fortunate we are and how kind sentient beings have done, been to us, then it becomes very easy to smile. Okay? I should always present a smiling face and seek to frown and look angry. How do you feel when you're in a room with somebody who's frowning and looking angry? Do you want to talk to that person? No. Do you even want to sit at the same table with them? No. Unless you're in that mood and you misery loves, likes company. Yeah. Then there's somebody else who looks miserable. I'll complain to them. They'll complain to me. We'll both feel worse. <laughs> no, we'll both feel better. No, we both actually feel worse. I don't know, okay? But to watch our face, our facial expression, there's some people who naturally their mouth goes like this. I, I have one friend, and even when she's not upset, her mouth goes down, yeah? And it, it, I notice how, how I react to that, yeah? So beware of that. Beware, aware of our body language. Yeah? If you're sitting, you know, and your body's relaxed, 
And be aware when you stand or sit and you're like this. What's that? Oh, why am I crossing my arms like this? That's indicating something about how I feel. Isn't it? Yeah. Or when you stand with one hip out and one foot forward and, you know, you know that gesture. If he gets into this later, you start pointing at people. But it's kind of an authoritarian. It either is a sexual thing, depending upon how exactly you put your hip, or it's uh, I'm in power position. Yeah. Be, be aware. Why am I standing like that? Yeah. That, in our, um, our monastic precepts, yeah, the the eight, uh, the I'm sorry, the hundred uh, shikshas, the trainings, you know, at the end of the Pratimoksha. We're not supposed to stand with our hands on their hips. What does this remind you of? Hands on your hips. I want to see if people have the same association as I do. <laughs> My mother. And I got in, I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Huh? I think of dancing. You think of dancing? Oh, nice. Superman? <laughs> Superman didn't stand like, did he? Oh, but he had his chest down. Like <laughs> yeah. No, for me it's like, and then the words are, young lady. <laughs> <laughs> the same with you. Young lady, who do you think you are? Or what do you think you're doing? And I'm not supposed to answer that. <laughs> okay. So cease to frown and look angry. I should be a friend and counsel of the world. Yeah? So when you wake up in the morning, think, I am a friend and counsel of the world. Yeah, I am a worthwhile human being that has something to share with the world. Shanti Deva even said so. And so I am going to practice being a friend and a counsel to the world. I'm not going to walk around all day like this. Yeah? <laughs> you tell, you you know, you give yourself some instructions. Yeah, because what is what I just did? What does that tell you? Well, that's exactly it. You don't want to talk to me. <laughs> okay. So look at... You know, if you're feeling lonely, look at your facial expression and your body language because you may be scaring people away. Not scaring people, but, you know, we radiate 
I'm in a bad mood, don't come near me. Or when you're furious. You know, then everybody goes, okay, (laughs) see you later. (laughs) This is very interesting, isn't it? I mean, we think of Dharma as this incredible, profound philosophy. But it's also this. What is the expression on my face? What, What does that expression indicate? Is that expression in accord with the kind of person I want to be? Is that expression and my body language indicative of my spiritual practice? Or is it indicative of my fear? And that's why I'm like this or of my anxiety. Yeah, I'm exaggerating, but you know, people who tap their foot all the time. Play with something, you know, twirl your hair. After you shaved your head, did you reach your finger up to twirl your hair? (laughs) There's nothing to twirl anymore. Okay, verse 72. I should desist from inconsiderately and noisily moving around chairs, slamming the microwave, and making a lot of noise when I'm at the snack counter. (laughs) As well as from violently opening doors. I should always delight in humility. So we eat lunch in silence at the Abbey. But some people think silence means only you don't talk. So their mouth is closed. They say, I'm keeping silence. And then they take their crackers and everything out and eat them and slam the microwave door. Okay. This is talking about as well as violently opening doors and slamming the microwave door. Now we're going to get a bunch of people who write us and tell us not to use microwaves. Okay. But... You know, eating in silence in, and being a considerate person means being aware of how we are moving in space. Yeah? And silence means, you know, moving around in a graceful way, not, you know, making undue noise. Okay. So I should desist from inconsiderately and noisily moving around chairs and so forth. Clunk, 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 stomping around like when we're in a bad mood. Yeah. 
banging things around. I mean, even washing the dishes, I can't, you know, I have a hard time going in there because, I mean, people, it seems like with the noise that people are using the the tops of the pots like frisbees, <laughs> throwing them around, and then they go clonk on something. You know, it is so noisy in there. You know, and the tin pans, I mean, the aluminum things, and oh my goodness, you know? So try, you, it, the amount of noise does not, being noisy does not make it go quicker. And being mindful does not make it go slower. Okay? I'm not advocating the kind of mindfulness that is. I'm not saying that. You can be mindful and still move at a reasonable speed. Okay? So try it. Okay, this is from inconsiderably and noisily moving around chairs and so forth, as well as from violently opening doors, I should always delight in humility. In other words, you know, I don't have to fill the room with my negative energy. If you want to fill the room with your positive energy, great, but you don't even have to do that. Yeah. But definitely, we don't want to fill the room with our, our restlessness. 73, The Stork, the Cat, and the Thief. By moving silently and carefully, accomplish what they desire to do. And it doesn't take any longer and it creates a very calm, peaceful environment. A bodhisattva, too, should always behave in this way. Okay. So, can you, if you think of His Holiness, can you imagine His Holiness stumping into a room or making a lot of noise doing something? or moving around inconsiderately. No, that doesn't, that doesn't fit him. Yeah, I've seen him in many different situations and I've never seen that. Yeah. 74, with respect, I should gratefully accept unsought after words that are on benefit that are of benefit, as long as they are praising me, but not if they're criticizing me. Oh, sorry, Shanti Deva didn't write that last bit. <laughs> With respect, I should gratefully accept unsought after words that are of benefit and that wisely advise and admonish me. At all times, I should be the pupil of everyone. Okay. 
That means, you know, when people give us feedback, we listen. Even we didn't ask for it. Okay. It doesn't mean we have to believe what everybody says. Okay. Somebody, their, you know, Namtok machine is, is, <laughs> is, you know, having a good economy today and it's putting out lots and lots and lots of stuff and you happen to be there and receive the, receive it. So it doesn't mean you need to believe everything everybody says, but listen to it because there may be something in it that is true. Okay. If you ask somebody for advice, well, first of all, before you ask, ask yourself, who is this person I'm asking advice from? Yeah. And is this person likely to give me the kind of advice I want to follow or the kind of advice that's going to rattle me? Yeah. And if it, you know, if you don't feel the person is reliable or if you feel that the kind of advice they give you often doesn't fit, then ask somebody else for advice. But one thing people do, some people, is they go around and they ask everybody for advice. Yeah. I'll ask so-and-so who says one thing. I'll ask so-and-so who says something else. I'll ask so-and-so over here, you know, who, who tells me that. And then I get monumentally confused because I have so much advice. And then I just put it all down. It's like I've I known some people who uh, will, will, you know, they want to ordain and they go around to every single Lama they can find until they find one Lama who says yes. You know, that, you know, that, that's not how to do it. Or, um, the story of the, the lady in Malaysia who came to me and said, you know, I've been dating this guy for a while. He's nice, but I'm not sure if I should marry him. What do you think? Yeah, now I'm not going to tell somebody who to marry. You know, that is a setup for, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I stay, I stay quiet. I said, you know, that's not for me to tell you. And she said, well, Lama X told me I should marry him. Uh, and then Lama Y came to give some teachings and I asked him and he said, don't marry him. So I don't know whether to marry him or not. What do you think? Is that advice I should give? Yeah? Is that advice we should ask somebody? <laughs> yeah? No, it's your decision. Yeah. You, you know? Do you want to marry the guy? I can't tell you. You figure it out. Okay. So it's, it could be unsought after words that are of benefit. So we have to think, are these words benefiting me? Or is somebody 
venting because they're angry. If they're venting because they're upset, then I need to, to listen to them, show some empathy, and check if I did something that was offensive to them. And if I did, then I need to apologize. Yeah. Or maybe they misunderstood something I said, so I need to clarify that. Okay. Um, but if somebody gives me some wise advice, or even advice I'm not sure about and I didn't ask for, you know, then you can listen to it and you can see, oh, you know, is this somebody that I know well, that I trust, and uh, is seeing something about me that, that I'm not seeing about me? Yeah, and then that can be helpful, and, you know, to listen to that instead of getting defensive and saying, no, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, you're projecting, you're just upset, you're dumping your anger all over me. Okay, but to try and and listen. And when it says, at all times, I should be the pupil of everybody, that means whatever we can learn from somebody, we learn that. It doesn't mean that we should take to heart and learn everything ordinary people say to us. Okay, because especially if if you have friends and family who don't believe in rebirth, they're going to give you really different advice than people who do believe in rebirth. Okay, and so those may, people may give you advice that you didn't ask for, and you can say yes, you know, thank you, but you don't have to agree with it and enact it. One thing, but you can learn from it still. One thing that, that happened when I, uh, when I decided I wanted to ordain and Lama makes everybody go back to their family before they ordain and, you know, uh, and check with their family. And sometimes he has people work for a year or two before they, this was in the old days before they came back and ordained. Um, so what was I getting at? Uh, I was going to give an example. Yes. So I went back, you know, and I was spending time with my family. And, uh, you know, my family doesn't believe in rebirth. And they have a certain idea of what happiness is. And they want me to be happy. And so they were trying to push me in the direction that they thought would make me happy. They have certain opinions about different things. And, you know, they would tell their opinions as part of conversation. And I would listen. I didn't, you know, counter their things because I already know about some topics. Useless to say anything, so I would just listen. But then what was very interesting and extremely helpful for me is is in the evening I would sit down And I would think, okay, here's a situation. What were my my family's view on that situation? What would be the Buddha's view on that situation? Here's what my family thought I should do. Here's what the Buddha thinks I should do. 
you know? And it really made me think deeply about, oh, it made me do some analysis about the, the advice my family was giving me. And it's like, okay, if I act that way, what kind of karma am I creating? Yeah, how will it influence the people around me? How will I be reborn from acting like that? And if I act like the Buddha prescribed or thought like the Buddha prescribed, you know, followed some of his antidotes for the afflictions, then what kind of karma would I create? What kind of rebirth would I have? How would I influence the people around me? Okay? And it was so incredibly helpful for me to get really clear about what I believed in. You know? Because we have to, you know, we have to be clear about what we believe in and what our priorities are. Yeah? Otherwise, you know, otherwise we're a two-pointed needle. So I found that incredibly helpful, even though, of course, I didn't like everything that I listened to from, you know, the worldly presentation. And there were some very interesting things that happened uh, during that time that I was visiting them, okay? So one was... Uh, my cousin was getting married, and uh, the morning of the wedding, we get a phone call, and his mother, my aunt, was found dead in the bathtub at the same at she was staying at, with them at the her his fiance's house. She died taking bath the morning her son was getting married. Okay, so there was supposed to be some big family get-together before the wedding. And I didn't feel like going, (laughs) you know. I wanted to stay and meditate on death and death and impermanence and use this, what was happening, as, as part of my meditation. And I also wanted to do some prayers and practices and dedicate them for her. My family's view was, well, she's dead. It doesn't really matter. We should go out and have fun and be with everybody else. Anyway, we didn't like this particular aunt very much, you know, so, so they said. So, you know, and, and they, they certainly weren't going to do prayers. They weren't going to do Kaddish, you know, any kind of anything, you know. It's like, well, there's a family get-together, let's go and have a good time, and why not? So that was a a really good situation for me to sit down and really think, okay, yeah, what's their attitude about death? What's the Buddha's attitude about death? What makes more sense to me? Yeah, how can I be of more benefit? to my aunt. And then at the wedding, um, one of my uncles was talking to my cousin. My cousin's father was this uncle's brother. They were brothers. And and there, there's my cousin. He's getting married that night. His mother died in the morning. 
They're trying to figure out how to do the wedding because you can't have music and a band and dancing when somebody just died, but they weren't going to cancel the wedding. And he's about to get married, and my uncle is talking to him about the will and probate and how to avoid taxes on the inheritance. <laughs> you know? And again, it was like, okay, look at how worldly people view something about what's important. Because from my uncle's viewpoint, he wanted to help his nephew, and the most important thing to do was to help him get the inheritance without paying a lot of taxes. You know, and I'm like, that's the last thing I would think about, yeah? So, so this can be, you know, listening to what other people say. You know, you use it to actually ask yourself, what do I believe? You know, what's the Dharma view on this? What's the worldly view? And then it, it helped, you know, that visit helped me so much to clarify what I believed and what I wanted to do in my life. Many other stories from that visit, but we won't go into them now. Okay. Um, so I should be the pupil of everybody in terms of I should I can learn from whatever situation I'm in. Yeah. So sometimes there's really uncomfortable situations, and our habitual response is, I want to be here. It's like, I don't want to be here. Like the movie I told you about with the woman in the room and the skeleton comes out and it's like, oh, I don't want to be in a room with a skeleton. Okay? That's our knee-jerk reaction. Some situations, if we are in physical danger, we need to leave. We don't need to get freaked out, but we need to leave. ASAP. Okay. But other situations, people, you know, may be saying or doing things, and we can pay attention to it. Yeah. Doesn't mean we have to stay there the whole time. You know, we're monastics. Oh, I was, oh, this is another story. Okay. So I ordained, and then I went to one, um, one Dharma center. And, uh, you know, I was traveling through and I stayed the night. And I was sitting and talking with the people. And they all pulled out, you know, some grass and started smoking. You know, now, well, this is a very interesting situation. Um, but, and there was something to learn for, from it, which is, I don't want to be here. <laughs> this is not a good situation for a nun to be in. Yeah? And so I left. So when I say, you know, you can learn from everything, it doesn't mean you need to stay there. Yeah, you can learn very quickly and leave. Other times, you know, somebody with, especially, you know, because the people are so... uh you know, in their own camps politically now, sometimes it can be real interesting 
to, to listen to somebody who has a very different take on things. You know, not that you're necessarily going to switch your ideas, but it gives you insight into what is important to that person and why that person is thinking the way they are thinking. Because sometimes we may go, oh, these people, how can they believe this? How can they do this? But then if you listen, then you get a feel of what, how they see their place in society and in the caste system and what they feel like they're missing out on or could miss out on or who they feel understands them and who doesn't. Okay, and then that really helps us to understand where people are coming from. You know, like that one woman uh, who lived in, in uh, Berkeley who went to live in Louisiana to get to know the, the people. She was a sociologist or anthropologist, and she really wanted to understand how the people there thought. She wrote a book, Stranger in Their Own Land, yeah, and it was how she explained it. It was so helpful to to hear how those people thought, even though some of what they thought did not make sense to us, to me personally. I understood where they were coming from with their culture, their family history, their religion, and so forth. Yeah, so that, you know, you can, we can learn a lot from listening to people who have different ideas. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 75. I should say, well said to all those who speak Dharma well. And if I see someone doing good, I should praise them and be well pleased. Okay. So what it's saying is, when somebody does something well, we should comment on it. We are very habituated with criticizing ourselves and criticizing other people. Okay. Too habituated with those. Yeah. Here he's saying, when we're with other people, point out what they did well. Yeah. And we should know what we do well, too. That doesn't mean getting, we have to get arrogant about it. But we can evaluate ourselves and say, that was, that was good. I'm glad I did it that way. Okay. But to be able to say to people, you know, that, you know, what you said was good or what you did was good or, um, you see somebody handle a situation in a way that you never would have thought of handling it yourself. And it makes a light bulb goes on, go on about alternative ways of responding. Yeah. And to point that out to somebody and say, wow, you know, I never thought about things like that. And this was really helpful watching how you handled it. Okay. So what it's saying is to allow our mind to be pleased about things well done, and other people's virtue. Okay, instead of feeling 
jealous. Yeah. Instead of feeling jealous, instead of picking some fault, yes, they did that well, but... And then point out something that they could have improved on. Okay? So to really allow ourselves to feel happy at other people's good deeds and to allow ourselves to feel happy at, at other people's success. Because our feeling unhappy does not change the situation. It does not make us better. It does not make whatever we're jealous because they have. It does not give that opportunity or object or relationship to us. Yeah. So we need to just feel happy. Somebody did something. And like I frequently say, I'm glad people that are better than me. Because really, if I were the best, we would be in bad shape. And also, if I were the best, who am I going to learn from? Okay? So to, to allow ourselves to be happy at other people's opportunities and success. Yeah. When I was in Italy with all my friends, the macho Italian monks, they would get so many opportunities that I did not get. Yeah? And I was sometimes... At, at that time, I was angry. Yeah? Now I can look back, because jealousy actually is a branch of anger, you know? And I could see there was jealousy that led to anger. Yeah, because I was angry. Why, did, why can they do that? Why do they get that opportunity, you know? Plus, why are they, you know, pushing me down? Yeah. And unfortunately, at that time, I was, uh, you know, my anger was quite strong. And, um, yeah, sometimes the, every, it overpowered me, and I would criticize. Yeah. But what the situation did tell me is I have a problem with anger, and I need to do something about it. Okay, so if I please someone doing good, I should praise them and be well pleased. Even if they did something good and they are so arrogant about it. I can't stand arrogant people, you know. Now that's an interesting statement. What about arrogant people can't I stand? And why can't I stand them? Well, because actually, I'm jealous. They are arrogant. Other people believe what they're saying. They get the good opportunities, and I'm left behind. And actually, they aren't so good after all. You know? And if you live your whole life with that kind of attitude that says, I mean, what's that behind that attitude? That added, what's behind it is, 
I should have everything good. The world owes me everything good. They should not have it. They don't deserve it. I deserve it, but nobody gives it to me, and they don't pay it, uh, adequate attention to me, and I'm neglected. And uh, Yeah? Isn't that what lies behind that? So, uh, you know... And it's such a miserable state of mind to have. So, even if they're arrogant, if you say, well, clearly they have the karma to be praised for that. They have the karma to receive that opportunity. I don't have that karma. Yeah. If I want to have the karma, do you know, have opportunities like this, I need to change my behavior. And one way to change my behavior is to not be so angry. Yeah? Because anger is a, is a big impediment to anything virtuous that you want to do. You know? And I need to stop being jealous and just say, you know... What they're getting is, even if they're getting a dharma opportunity that I want, the jealousy is somehow worldly. You know, they get to be with the teachers. I don't. It looks like a dharma thing. I want to be with my teachers and I can learn more. And that's a virtuous thing to want to be with your teachers. But... It's actually jealousy because they get to be with the teachers and then they, they think they're very good and other people think that they're the most important people and I'm get ignored again. So actually, what I'm jealous about is not so much a dharma activity as the worldly uh, benefit I'm getting from Changing a dharma opportunity into getting my worldly benefit. So are you are you getting what I'm saying? Yeah, it's actually a dharma opportunity, but in my mind, I'm seeking some kind of status from it, and I'm not getting it. You know, or I'm just you know in my old thing of you know I get neglected, and then then of course you know well they're men, and so then I go off in that whole thing. You know, that's why I don't pay attention. And it's like, you, at some point, you just, you just say, <laughs> I got to stop this. Very interesting. I'm going off on a few tangents. But I was invited to attend a symposium that is next week. And it's called Women and Vajrayana. And... I had been meaning to tell all of you about it. I'll, I'll tell you more later. But they uh, asked for uh, people's kind of questions and the issues that they want to talk about, about that. And uh, yesterday they sent out something with those questions. It was very interesting for me to read the questions and issues. So much of them were about women being in second place in Tibetan Buddhism. And I just realized from reading these questions that living at the Abbey, I do not have that issue anymore. <laughs> you know? 
I do not have that issue. And I've done some work on myself. And, you know, I have so much opportunity that it's, that I'm not using. And, uh, whatever opportunity I, I don't have, it's not, I, I don't want to make this into a thing that I ruminate about again and again because I'm a woman, you know, it's just that is miserable. So it was, it was quite interesting for me to read some of the things that people wanted to discuss because I just thought, you know, that, that used to be an issue for me. It's not an issue for me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, oh, whew. But I also realized how good it is for uh, to have a community where there's a majority of women, how that changes living in a community where it's a majority of men, where you can't even hear your voice when you chant the prayers. Yeah. So here you can we can hear our own voice. It's very very interesting. So um, yeah, so learning to rejoice at the opportunities people have, and at a certain point, just give up and put use your energy for something productive, because spinning around about all, you know, it's not fair, is not productive. Yeah, as men, as much time as I spent in my life spinning on that. Yes. I was thinking about it some time ago too, and um, because I know some women, even in, in your age, and um, they are different than you in regard to... Um, it may look like they are um, uh, they are still holding on to this old woman role of being the servant for the man, mm. even in the Dharma context. And but on the other side, also then I had a bit of struggle with that because they are seemingly happy of being of service. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also can see like your perspective um, being very strong and um, self-reliant um, without any man in, in, as a lead, so to say. So um, yeah, there's a bit of this um, struggle in, in me how to see that. Um, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I get what you're, what you're talking about. Because you see some women who like to serve the men and uh and it's also taught that if the you know your teachers if your teachers happen to be men it doesn't say you know but you serve your teachers and it so happens in tibetan buddhism most of them are men so then you wind up yeah so the the men should also serve the teachers but it's very uh for women the 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 role of serving of cooking cleaning serving they fall into it very, very easily, and they feel comfortable with it. And if they do it because uh, they have respect for their teachers or the men or the sangha, they're serving the bhikshu sangha, that's good. Yeah? 
And if there's some kind of thing in their mind of, I'm a woman and this is what women do, so be it. We don't need to think that way. Yeah. But when we're in situations, when we're with our teachers who are men, we serve them because it doesn't matter who your teacher is or what gender they are. You, you know, you adopt that position of, of service. Yeah. And even here, you know, Halama Yeshi said, I am the servant of others. I, you know, that's our mantra. But what serving other sentient beings does not, you don't have to frame it in terms of who's better than who and who is more important than who. That's the key. That's the key. Because bodhisattvas serve sentient beings, but they aren't thinking, I'm a bodhisattva and I'm higher, I have more realizations than them, so they should actually be serving me. Bodhisattva isn't thinking that. Bodhisattva is not, uh, you know, thinking, oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm serving, you know, I'm a female bodhisattva, but, you know, I'm serving a male bodhisattva who's more advanced than me. And, you know, that's just same old thing of, you know, women serving the men. And then you look, no, that's not my motivation at all. My motivation is I have respect for their realizations and their accomplishments, and I want to learn how to be like them. So I'm serving from the motivation of admiration, not the motivation of, uh, I, uh, of social rank and who has more or less social rank. Yeah? So it's changing in your own mind this perspective you have about things. Because we tend to be so based on social rank, don't we? Who's higher, who's lower? based on whatever group we're in and whatever the the quality, you know, things are. And you just say, that's not my, I'm not figuring social rank into whether I serve somebody or don't serve somebody. Yeah? Yeah, thank you for asking that. That I've never verbalized that before, but that that's... Yeah, that's what you do. You just take that old habit, you take that out, and you throw it away. And that's so counter to the societal, um, you know, even how it looks like. It may look like you're still following an old role model of women serving men, but in your mind you're actually having a different approach. So yeah. you have to be very strong, basically, to hold that and not to fall back into that societal um, yeah. thing um, right. because of societal pressure or whatever it is. Right. But you're a Dharma practitioner who is right. holding a different principle. Yeah, so it's not only falling back into the societal pressure, but falling back into the I am lesser than, and so my job is to serve. Because we've had that imprinted very strongly. Because there's many ways to serve. Yeah. When you're a leader, you serve. Yeah. If you read uh, uh, Aryadeva, yeah, I think it's chapter four, he talks about leaders because the chapter is all about abandoning arrogance. 
And he points out how vividly that the leader is the servant of the people who made them the leader. So there's no reason for leaders to be arrogant because they only have that position because other people gave it to them. Yeah. And then, you know, it, and then it's, it's different situation by, by situation. Some situations, uh, you know, there's, there's mansplaining. Yeah, mansplaining. You know, uh, the, the guy just starts talking because he thinks he, he knows better than any woman around, and you actually know more than he does, but he's explaining it. Yeah, I'm sure you've encountered that. Yeah, and you've encountered that. I've encountered that. So, um, you know, then uh, with those situations, then sometimes, sometimes you just, it's like, okay, this guy thinks he's a big shot. Let him go. And other situations, depending on the relationship with the person, you have to gently say, you know, excuse me, but that's my field of expertise. <laughs> yeah. Or excuse me, that question was asked to me. I would like the opportunity to answer it. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you just let it go, and sometimes you just gently remind somebody. Yeah. So... Okay, that's enough for today. So we'll start on 76 next time. Okay, so lots to think about here. So incorporate this in your daily meditation. <laughs>